Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm your host, Laura Hersher. If you have not been uh, under a rock for the last 10 days, then you have heard about the genome editing of the two Chinese twins. Um, and that, no surprise, is going to be what we're talking about here today. The the, the experiment, if you want to call it that, it's not really experiment, it's like it, it, uh, treatment, um, has, uh, has provoked near universal criticism. But really there's two different strains of criticism that are quite different and very important. One is this is wrong, meaning the whole idea is wrong. And the other is this went wrong, meaning like this might be okay, but it wasn't okay in this instance. And we're going to look at both of them this um, in this podcast. Joining me today to sort out this uh, shocking tale and the hand-wringing that followed is Kieran Musunuru. Dr. Musunuru is a man of many degrees, MD, <laughs> PhD, MPH, um, and a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, specialist in cardiovascular and metabolic diseases. And, and very importantly for the terms of our discussion here today, he's someone who's actually worked with the CRISPR-Cas9 system and is recognized as an expert in genome editing. Did you, did you have a busy week last week, Karen? <laughs> well, first, thanks, Laura, for having me on. Yes, I had a very busy week. The last, oh, must be what, nine days now have been more or less nonstop discussions with all sorts of people, whether it's journalists or whether it's just interested scientists, whether it's my students in the gene therapy and gene editing class I teach here at University of Pennsylvania. That's inevitably the topic of conversation. Yeah, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I bet they're, they're fascinated. So just in case there's anybody that hasn't seen it in the simplest terms, um, we're talking about the work by Chung Kai He, what did uh, Dr. He do? So what Dr. He's team attempted to do was to turn off a gene called CCR5 in human embryos. The idea was to take those embryos through pregnancy and then ultimately have children who are resistant to infection with HIV. That's the virus that causes AIDS, of course. And they were able to get two embryos where they had apparently turned off the gene. And that gave rise to the twin girls that we've all heard about. Now, what's notable is in one of the embryos, the report was that the gene was entirely turned off, which should mean that the twin that was born from that embryo is fully resistant to HIV. However, the gene was only partially turned off in the other embryo, meaning that that particular child would not be fully resistant to HIV. And, and I've heard variably that both kids are mosaic or that one child is mosaic so that, that it say that this changes were achieved in some cells, but not in other cells. Right. So it gets more complicated. So what I just told you is that the gene had been either fully turned off or partially turned off. That's assuming that everything worked cleanly. And in his public statements, Dr. Hood did make that claim that things had worked cleanly. But from data that he has presented to the world as of uh, a presentation at the International Summit on Human Genome Editing in Hong Kong last week, uh, he was an attendee, he was a speaker, he showed all of his data related to the twins that he has in hand up until this point. It was very clear to an expert's eye, and um, I include myself in that category, it was immediately clear looking at the sequencing data from the embryos 
that they had this phenomenon known as mosaicism. They were mosaic, and what that means is that there was incomplete and inconsistent editing across the cell, the cells of the embryo. So some of the cells had some edits, some of the cells had different edits, some of the cells might have no edits at all, and what happens in the embryo is ultimately reflected in what happens in the person who's born from that embryo. So it's quite possible that one or both sisters um, are also mosaic in the sense that they have different edits in different parts of the body. We don't actually know this for sure yet because as of last week, it appears that no testing had actually been done on the children's bodies themselves, only in the placenta and the umbilical cord after the birth. And so it's still a big question mark. Yeah. Yeah, this is fascinating stuff, and I, I, I'm more definitely going to get back to more of that. I, 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 um, so Karen and I worked together on, um, on a task force established by the American Society of Human Genetics to create a position statement several years ago on this very thing, on germline genetic editing. Um, and that position statement ultimately was supported by organizations of genetic professionals from six continents, which I think is a pretty good batting average, um, mm-hmm. and also was in line with what other groups of uh, professionals who looked at this issue and found, and and basically it, something like this. Um, there were norms against any germline editing. That is to say, any changes in the eggs, the sperm, the embryos that would be inherited by every generation if that individual was born and then went on to reproduce. So changes to the gene pool, so to speak. Um, there were norms against that, but I, I was trying to exp- I explain this once to somebody at a, at a party who was not a geneticist. and I thought, like, he said the perfect thing. He listened to me, and I said, well, the norms were established when we couldn't do it. So it was, like, very easy to say, absolutely, we're drawing a line here, we're not going to do this. And he said, oh, yeah, it's like me with that like $6 million Manhattan apartment. I look at the pictures and I'm like, you know, the second bathroom just isn't big enough, you know? Like, <laughs> it's very easy to not want something you can't have. <laughs> sure. And then suddenly sure. when we when it became a real issue, we had to revisit this question. And, um, and, and I so I... I think the starting point is what we discussed three years ago is, is it ever okay? And what our group came up with, you know, so the arguments against are really like there's a slippery slope argument, which I think is a big part of it, right? Just we needed to draw a line somewhere. So it made people comfortable to have a line. And this was a line you could draw. Um, Additionally, People talk about there being the added risk of heritable and intergenerational changes, but I'll, I'll tell you what I think that the that second thing is more an excuse for the first. Um, yeah. Um, so when we looked at this a couple of years ago, um, a consensus in our group and others emerged that there should be a door open to germline modification. Now, granted, this is controversial. That's not a statement everyone would agree with. Um, but if you think the door is open, there's a series of sort of steps, checklist of things that should be accomplished beforehand. And I want to kind of go through that checklist. This is an experiment that failed that checklist on many, on many levels, but let's just work our way through it. And the, 
the first one is obviously safety and efficacy. So you're saying the outcome was really not what you'd want to see. And I'd say that's not surprising, right? I mean, do do you think the preclinical work is there to be doing this? I think all the preclinical work that has been done up until this point, including Dr. Ho's work, which was also, the preclinical work was also presented uh, last week in his presentation, all the preclinical work has pointed towards there being problems with the gene editing technology. It has not been perfected yet. If you apply it in human embryos or embryos from mice or monkeys or other animals, universally what has been observed is two things. One, you're highly likely to get this effect um, that I mentioned before of mosaicism, of inconsistent editing across the cells in the embryo. That's seen at a very high rate, even in human embryos. And then the other issue is uh, what we call off-target effects, and that is unintended edits, not at the site that you want to target, in this case, turning off a gene um, to confer resistance to HIV, but actually getting edits or changes or mutations, if you want to call them that, elsewhere in the DNA, potentially affecting other genes, and that could cause increased risk of cancer down the road. And so we knew that there were these two consequences. They were appearing in the preclinical studies. Somehow, Dr. Ha and his team got it into their heads that they had solved these problems and were ready to proceed to pregnancy. But the very data that he showed in his presentation, you know, kind of blows my mind because either he didn't understand the data that was in front of him or he saw the data, understood it, and willfully disregarded it and went ahead with the pregnancy anyway. But the data clearly show that there was mosaicism in both of the embryos, and there was even evidence of an off-target mutation in one of the embryos. It's right there in his data. Um, It's unequivocal in my mind. He went forward with flawed embryos. And, you know, putting aside all the ethical considerations, even assuming you would check the box on every one of those um, issues and it was fine to proceed in an ethical sense. Uh, Medically, you would never proceed with flawed embryos. I mean, the way I think of it is, uh, you know, if you're doing a heart transplant, very commonly done, no one questions the value and the ethical basis for doing heart transplants. But if you were to, as a surgeon, take a heart that had been out of the donor's body for too long a period of time, usually you only have 24 hours or so, but let's say you waited 48 hours or 72 hours, knowing that that heart was really no good, but you went ahead and did the surgery anyway, I mean, clearly that's a medical fail, right? Um, And so never should have gone ahead, um, given that there were these issues, um, clear issues with the embryos that could have easily been predicted um, from the preclinical work. So So, so let me me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. I I was curious... um, I think you probably saw or, or, or saw at least excerpts of uh, Dr. Daly's talk, who's at the Broad, where he said this was a this was a misstep, this was a mistake, this experiment, but we are ready to proceed. We should be talking about that. Um, he was really the only person who said that. Do you just disagree? Did you understand his comments differently? Well, I, I personally disagree. I don't think we're anywhere ready for prime time, so to speak. Uh, that if you look at the long arc of history, um, there is potential benefit. Um, we may not agree on exactly what disease is or the degree of unmet medical need, but I think most scientists, physicians, ethicists 
patient advocates, all the various stakeholders who are involved in this, will agree that there are potential cases where there is such a large degree of unmet medical need that it would be worth exploring. Yeah, and so, so not all of them, but I, I agree with you, but not, not, not all of them. There's definitely a, a contingent that just says, no, this is our line. But um, I, 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 I do think of the groups that have studied it, that's where most most people have come out. That's where the consensus lies right now. Uh, so, so that's actually exactly where I wanted to go next because the next thing in the checklist is, is this the right use and the right process? And usually that's defined as a serious medical condition for which there is no alternative treatment. So, I mean, sort of obvious here, a lot of people pointed this out and, 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 um, that one of the things that was wrong here is that if the goal was to stop these kids getting HIV transmission from HIV affected fathers, um, there are better ways to do that. There are better, simpler, easier ways to do that. And so you are willfully going to a place where you're experimenting on two little girls, uh, when we have technology that we know works, which is just a medical ethics taboo, right? Like you don't, absolutely, you don't experiment, and you certainly don't experiment on babies who can't give consent yeah. when you have, uh, when you when you have an alternative solution. Um, so in that sense, even if we had gotten through step one, which we did not, um, step two would be: is this a good use? I think a lot of people would argue that this is not a good use. Um, the argument is a little less clear if you're not doing it to avoid transmission, but to av- to make them immune to HIV or or less susceptible to HIV. So what what I want to ask you here? So yeah, this was a bad process. Yeah, this was a bad decision. But what would a good decision look like? Yanni uh, Verlich said. One of the things that he took home from this is that there's going to be very, very few uses uh, where genome editing is the answer. Um, do you agree with that? What, what are the, what would you describe as a good case scenario? Yeah. So I think of three categories of, uh, of use cases when it comes to human germline genome editing. So I think of medical need. That's the first. That's where there's the most to gain and the least to lose because, as you pointed out, this would, these would be cases where there's no chance of health um, without um, actually using gene editing where there's no alternative treatment. It's narrow, but I think there are a few cases, and I can talk about that in a moment. The second category is what I think of as medical benefit, and so these would be diseases, and this would include things like Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, um, breast cancer, HIV, where it is not a given that you're going to get the disease in your lifetime. It's far less than 100%, but you may be at risk as everyone living is at risk for these various diseases. And then the gene editing would be intended to reduce that risk by some appreciable degree. So um, again, not a medical need, but a medical benefit. And then there are cases where the third category of cases where there's no actual medical implications, what I think a lot of us would call enhancements. And these are traits that might be considered desirable by the parents who want to force them on their kids, um, but don't actually affect health, don't actually affect the lifespan. It could be frivolous things such as eye color 
or hair color, or it could be more serious things that might be desirable, like increased athletic ability or even intelligence. Yeah. The the thing is where this is a very interesting conversation, this is why I think there is a contingent out there that says we just need a line and we can't do any of this because um, – because first of all, you could have yeah. norms against hair color and eye color. We sort of discussed that in uh, the, the, the least important things, the least important changes you could make. Um, when we talk about things like intelligence, my thought on that is what we're going to end up doing is like, well, no one's going to say we're testing for intelligence. They're going to talk about memory or executive function yeah. or risk against something that you can medicalize, right? So that, so that. Agreed. Right now, those, that kid if born unchanged would be normal, but you can say, well, we're, we're working against the risk of ADHD or we're working against the risk of, um, I don't know, as soon as there's a drug for it, it's a medical condition, you know? So, um, yeah. the lines to draw there are much more difficult than one would like them to be. Um, so I think that's why, um, why people, one of the reasons why people reasonably get uncomfortable because the truth is when we start using this for the most pressing concerns, the others are going to be harder and harder to rule out. Um, and I think that's something we need to acknowledge up front. So one of the, the third, sorry. I was going to say, I just absolutely agree. It's, it's very hard to, dev- to demarcate those lines between those three categories I mentioned. It might be a little bit easier between the first and the second category, but it really is uh, very porous when you're talking about medical benefit versus enhancement because that is open to interpretation. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it has a level of subjectivity baked right in. Um, and, you know, and so the third point on the checklist that our group came up with and many others is the idea that there would be some sort of societal consensus. There would be some sort of open, transparent uh, form of engagement where we would not go forward unless there was a consensus. Now, we were in on those meetings, so I'm going to give away a secret that both Kieran and I know, which is that that wasn't vague by accident. That was vague on purpose because nobody knows what that process looks like, right? Like nobody knows. We didn't know. We didn't know did – if you're saying that you have to get all of society buy-in – that's a really difficult standard because you'd have to start by explaining to society what the heck you're doing. This isn't familiar stuff. Like mostly people would, you know, you, if you stuck a microphone in their face and said, what do you think about human genome editing to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's? It would be unfair to ask anybody that question without giving them some right. massive amount of education first. And also there are people that, you know, that are stakeholders in that. They're, they're, they're family members with a given disease and so on who um, are like, yeah, well, Joe Blow down the block thinks, you know, this all makes me kind of uncomfortable. Get off my lawn. I don't want you doing this. He goes, I have a sick child. Isn't that person have more of a voice in it? So so it, it wasn't clear what the process looks like, and it wasn't clear who the quote-unquote stakeholders are um, to do this societal con- consensus. I think there's one thing we can agree on, though, is that this wasn't it. No, <laughs> clearly not didn't tell anyone. His institution uh, evidently wasn't aware of it. The hospital where the the twins were born, apparently the the clinical staff, the physicians, the nurses, and so forth, uh, weren't aware of it. 
Um, he makes some claim that he consulted other ethicists, or I should say ethicists. He's not an ethicist himself in any way, shape, or form, um, but ethicists and scientists. Um, it's not clear that he actually talked to you know, more than a few in either category, and even in those cases were, was um, having more of a theoretical conversation than actually talking about um, the fact that he was actually going to go forward with this. And so he was operating entirely without transparency, entirely without engaging um, all of the various stakeholders who we've mentioned. And uh, really, I mean, I think of it as going yeah. rogue. I mean, I think it's fair yeah, to so say it's, that. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, so, so now we know what the bad process looks like. And, and add to that that uh, the informed consent, like um, I'm, I'm not entirely a bioethicist, but it's like, I don't know, I, 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 I talked at a meeting once recently where I said I had one of those ancestry tests done and I came back 52% genetic counselor, 17% bioethicist, like 22% journalist, you know, and, 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 uh, 4%, you know, cult leader yeah. and so on. Anyway, um, so, I don't know, this is a surprise to the whole family. Um, so the, the bioethicist part of me will also point out that what was also terrible was the informed consent process. Um, and, He's not an ethicist and, and, and he's not actually a doctor. He's a biophysicist. So, um, unclear right. whether he fully understood, um, the predictable impact of the changes he was making and how they differed from what is a naturally occurring mutation that we have some data on because a, a fairly significant number of people have it. Um, so yeah, yeah. so, so the going rogue thing, actually brings me around to a thought I've had about this whole business, um, really about the hand-wringing part of it, um, which is that there are three very separate types of anxiety going on here in response to this that I think should be separated because one is about what we've mostly been talking about here, which is that it was a bad use for the, of the technology. And people are upset because they don't think the technology is a good idea. Many people who work in this field are upset because they're afraid that a, a, a misstep like this will lead to uh, regulation and people cracking down and it'll be harder and harder to do good work or, or non-germline work. Um, so that is a, 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 a really reasonable anxiety and and many people have have made a list of it. Uh another thing that's going on that I think is an undercurrent in the discussion um but much less clearly reasonable is that um this is a scientific first that occurred in China. Um there's a question of whether it was more of a stain for Chinese science or um you know whether there's I, I, I imagine that there's some people also sort of pumping their fist and saying like, yeah, but this happened first here. And I actually think that Dr. Hess thought that there'd be more of that reaction. I think he expected pride from people that this happened first in China. But at any rate, it does represent um, a part of a something that we know is going on in the field, which is that um, – the U.S. and Western Europe don't own these technologies anymore. They don't own the cutting edge of science. That's absolutely right. And the third is what you just described, which is the going rogue factor. I mean, it cannot be minimized 
that this uh, was announced on YouTube. That's That was the first announcement, not in science, not in nature, but in YouTube. And I actually think um, his first words when he got up to speak was not to apologize for what he did, but to apologize that it appeared first without peer review. Like that was the most thing yeah. he was most nervous about was like, I didn't do this the way that you're used to. And I think it's really interesting because from day one, from the first minute that CRISPR appeared, if you listen to people, they were nervous because it was always there. It's a relatively low cost, uh, low uh, barrier to entry technology. Um, and people very quickly rec- recognized that, that if you were going to be entering a world where do-it-yourselfers or people from outside the establishment could do science with profound impacts, that this was going to be an example of that sort of technology. Um, and so I think that's scaring people here and a part of the reaction. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it, it was pretty clear that his hand was forced that the announcement uh, came out before it was actually supposed to. I very strongly uh suspect that what he intended to do was to give his scheduled talk at the summit. It was uh, it was already scheduled for late Wednesday morning. Um, he was, to all knowledge of the organizers, going to be talking about preclinical work. There was no indication that he was going to talk about pregnancies. And I really think he was going to try to pull off a Steve Jobs style one last thing. He's going to talk about the preclinical work. And then out of his head, he's going to say, oh, by the way, we've actually taken some of these embryos through pregnancy, and we just had two wonderful little girls um, born just a few weeks ago. And that's how he was going to announce it to the world in his presentation. Um, and then timed with that, the YouTube videos and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought this, he thought this was going to go in a very different way. Um, yeah, hat, and hat that, tip to, as you suggested, that it was going to be met with a lot of praise. to Antonio Regalado at the MIT Technology Review, who's consistently... Yeah, consistently absolutely. scooped everybody on the CRISPR stories. So, like, you know, give yeah. credit. So let me ask you something, because you were a consultant for AP once the story broke, and AP had been had been he had brought AP in early on. They were the one exception to all the secrecy. He had them filming and involved and sort of a story ready to go, um, which is another part of the rogueness of this, that that while he had not had time to peer review it, he had had time to sort of get it set in the press. What do you think about that? So um, Regalado broke the story open when he got it. AP held it um, as per their agreement, and I'm all for people keeping their word, but there were, in the meantime, in the interim – while AP was holding this story, it looks like another pregnancy happened. Uh, given that we think these are inappropriate, was it right for the AP to to hold on to that and not and not to um, not to make it public? Sure. Now, this is something I've thought a lot about. Um, so, I think my view is that the AP acted as responsibly as they could in this situation. They were in a tough situation. You know, his um, PR person reached out to them, offered them this story um, or whether they heard rumors about it and reached out. It's not totally clear exactly how the initial interaction happened, but it happened. And they had no idea whether this was real or not. It could be a hoax. You might remember 15 years ago, there was a company 
clony that was connected to a cult that reported to world headlines that they had successfully cloned a human baby, um, which in retrospect clearly didn't happen. It was far beyond the technology at the time and even would be difficult to pull off now. Um, and so I'm sure the AP was thinking, how on earth do we know that this is real? And so that's why I and a few others were brought in as independent scientific consultants to actually evaluate the work. And so that didn't happen until less than a week before Antonio Regalado so broke you, the story. So did you see the, the paper summit. before the story broke publicly? Yes, I did. I did. Um, and so, again, because as soon as they got the manuscript from Dr. Huh, they passed it along to me and the, uh, and the other scientists. Um, before that, the AP had no way of knowing whether this was legitimate. I looked at the manuscript. It was immediately clear to me what had been done. It was immediately clear to me, more disturbingly, that the embryos were flawed and he had gone forward anyway. Um, that was a soul-destroying moment for me when I realized that. Um, just it made the whole thing so much worse. I mean, it was disturbing enough that you had a gene-edited baby, or actually in this case babies, but then the fact that either unknowingly or willfully took flawed embryos and made babies from them, uh, that more than anything else actually convinced me this was real because if this was faked, and you could, if you had enough sophistication, you could fake a manuscript, you could fake the data, um, but the fact that the data clearly showed that the embryos were flat. If you were trying to fake the right, story, there's right, no way you'd right. you put in you wouldn't, you wouldn't you know, fake a flawed data. Job. That convinced yeah. me more than anything, right? That's what convinced me that this was real. And then so I told the AP this, um, and I'm sure they got similar opinions from the other uh, the other folks. And then I think the AP, they had an agreement, and, you know, I would compare this. I mean, it's a different situation, but it's not all that different from any time a scientific paper is being published, the journal is planning to, you know, publish it in, you know, that week's issue. They'll give the press a few days beforehand to look at the paper and be able to do interviews um, under the agreement of embargo that they cannot actually report anything they've seen until the journal is actually. So, how many the paper. days? How many days was it? How many days were you in the position of knowing about this story before it broke publicly? Oh, le less than a week. Less than a week. And Dr. He had made it clear to them, as I understand it, that he planned to make an announcement at the summit. So we're really talking, you know, about Did you a want to get on a plane to time. Hong Kong? Well, yeah, I mean, I knew it was going to be live stream, so. <laughs> you could have stood up and been like, wait. Uh, the thoughts you thought <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think the AP acted responsibly. I mean, I think it's all too easy to criticize the AP for, you know, being you know, whether willingly or unwillingly turned into a PR arm for this guy. Um, but let's see, well, you know, let's talk about what actually happened. So as soon as I communicated my deep concerns, the AP um, had me uh, record a video interview with them. And if you actually go to the AP's initial report that came out shortly after uh, Antonio Regalado, uh, you know, scooped the story and made the first report, there's a video that was distributed along with the, the actual article um, that begins showing Dr. Huh and him talking about his achievements, interspersed, intercut, are clips from me strongly condemning the work. Um, so anyone watching that video in full is immediately going to get the whole story that, yes, this guy thinks he's done something great, but then, uh, you know, a scientist knowledgeable in the field very strongly feels that this was a terrible thing to have done, strongly condemns the work. And then there were various people quoted in the article uh, saying a similar message. So 
you can't really view as what the AP did as positive right, PR. Right. No, no, I didn't. I didn't have any trouble with the coverage. Um, and actually, you know, I get yeah. the journalistic ethics would be that you, you know, that you respect the embargoes um, and respect yeah. your your commitments to your sources. I, I I think it would have to be pretty extraordinary set of circumstances, but. It had only um, occurred to me as I was speaking that 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 they might have been involved long enough to know, like before the next pregnancy happened. If if that if that um, had to be stopped by uh, press breaking the rules, that's definitely not the way that's supposed to work. Like the, that that's why you're supposed to have right. IRBs yeah. and the hospital is supposed to be aware and the university is supposed to wear and something like obviously. Exactly. It's not on them to to understand it. Um, I get it. There's a. It's just. I just found it was an interesting question. It is, and I've heard. I've heard. You know, several journalists have raised that with me. I know. I think there is concern that that perhaps uh, you know some ethical principles might have been breached in, in the way the story came out. I don't feel that way myself. I think they acted responsibly. And I'll also point out that this other pregnancy um, that was mentioned by Dr. Hunt during his presentation. I think people came away. Um, thinking that a pregnancy had happened very late in the process, like literally within mm-hmm. the week before the announcement was made. Well, what happened? I think the pregnancy has been going on much longer. I think it's an early pregnancy, but I interpret that as first trimester. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I don't think it happened um, in any way because the AP didn't get the story out long enough or anything of that sort. I think it's been happening um, for a while. The other sort of uh, thought experiment question I had in terms of societal risk. So if you were to say that 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 preventing susceptibility to HIV was, if it could be done and done safely, a good use of the technology, um, uh, mm-hmm. I wondered, because it, it occurred to me at first, I, I wondered if it would be possible between the mosaicism and the selective edits and so on uh, for to create a situation where the person that was edited was either not susceptible to HIV or had much reduced risk, but could still carry and transmit the disease. Um, and I, I thought it was a very interesting societal hypothetical. Um, what if it was uh, a protective allele for a protective edit for the individual um, but that sort of a risk to society, you were creating somebody that could, without consequence, uh, pass along the disease. Do we have uh, a need to, to, to oversee it for reasons like that? Like when you have a direct conflict between individual benefit and societal benefit. I don't know how to answer that question. Like how do we stop that use of gene editing? Yeah. It's it's very challenging, and even even with the example that's play here with Dr. Hu's uh, medical procedure, if you want to call it that, with HIV, it's challenging because we know that the the way in which he turned off the gene uh, CCR5, that people who are naturally born with their CCR5 gene turned off, yes, they appear to be, if not quite fully, fairly resistant to HIV infection, um, but they also seem to be susceptible. Um, to more serious infections from other viruses, like West right. Nile virus, like the flu. West Nile virus is rare. It's not you know, really prevalent in China, so these girls have very little chance of being exposed to it, um, whereas people in other parts of the world might have more of a chance. Um, 
But right, then the right. flu is very common, right? I mean, we've all been exposed right. to the flu. Many of us have gotten it. Um, it's a very common occurrence. And so, you know, that's a potential negative consequence. And again, it might not affect these particular girls. But if you're talking about spreading that change through a large swath of the population because it's perceived as a good thing for individuals in a certain scenario where the um, exposed to HIV or have a higher risk than is typical for HIV, um, does it actually, um, you know, does it actually have adverse right. consequences well, I, on I think population that what you're What you're referring to there, what we're talking about there is the, the uh, almost all genes are pleiotropic. So, you know, they have effects in different areas and it's going to yeah. be a very hard job to try and create edits of any sort that do one thing that don't have other implications. Not off-target effects like you were talking about before, but um, correctly not, – not, not in other words, not things that happen that go badly because the thing didn't occur correctly. But when you do the edit correctly, uh, there will be other consequences, and those will be both hard to predict and hard to control. I think that is a – I mean, obviously, that's a really big issue. I think we're – somewhat as a society better poised to deal with that question because it really is uh, an informed consent issue. It's like if you explain it properly, you know, do you want to take the risk of doing something that reduces this but perhaps increases that? It makes it a harder question, but it doesn't have that sort of fundamental consequence. You know, so what I'm getting at, and I want to kind of do this the last thing, is that there's been a lot of a lot of the response from people that are more distressed a sort of, you know, somebody, people say, uh, a public figure says, this is unacceptable, this shouldn't have happened, this was a misstep, and there's been some people who've sort of said, that's not strong enough, we need something stronger. And I'm not sure what they think the something stronger is. You know, what what he did, yeah. what, what he did in China was would be illegal here. So there's really nothing stronger we need here. It would be illegal. And actually, I think it was illegal in China as well. Um, so if there's already laws against it, we're not going to reach out to a Chinese national and assassinate him. So I'm not sure what people think it is that we can do. I think that, that, that there's sort of a big misunderstanding about what control international science has over individual actors. Uh, and I recognize that that's scary, but it doesn't help to simply announce that something stronger should happen. Yeah, I would agree. And you know, what complicates this particular situation is how easy it is to use CRISPR. Um, you know, what they did here is they had in vitro fertilized embryos, which, you know, it, it's a routine medical procedure that helps many couples around the world in many countries. Um, and they bought the reagents from from uh, laboratory research suppliers, uh, bought the protein, bought the RNA molecule, mixed them, and injected them into the embryos. Um, and that's how they got the gene editing done. It really took almost So is there no any part of that process? And right. Is there any part of that process it? that could be restricted that you, would, that you know? It'd be very, very hard to restrict it. I mean, these reagents, even if, you know, you had to go through stringent requirements to be able to get your hands on those reagents from those companies. You can make them in the laboratory yourself fairly easily. We do it all the time. Um, it would have been well within his skill set, even though he's not all that savvy um, from everything I've learned in the last 
week or so. He's not all that savvy with respect to gene editing technology, but that's kind of the point. It's so easy to implement that, as you know, they're do-it-yourself kits that are being, right. you know, like, right. uh, you know, if not, if not sold, at least distributed to, to amateur so hobbyists. So this is here. This technology. This um, is that just makes here. it very hard to regulate. Um, yeah. This is just here, and I, I think in that regard, even though the reaction to this has been so negative, even though I don't think he's repeating it anytime soon, despite everything, I think we have to understand that this is just here. We're just going to have to live with it. Um, yeah. And uh, I think that was, in a sense, where our group got to, which is that um, a part of the process is giving up the idea that you can – announce to the world that this can't happen, you know? So I, I agree. I, I agree. Recognize that this is going to, you know, it's inevitable that this is going to go forward. It may not happen, you know, this year, although in this case it did happen this year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or it may. You know, in the next five it years. It may screw up your week again. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, if, if you look at the long arc of human history, of course it's going to happen eventually, right? And so I think what we did was was the best, you know, reasonable most reasonable thing we could do, which is admit that or, you know, acknowledge that, you know, the technology makes this readily doable and really set out concrete steps, guidelines, if you will, um, how to go about doing this, um, get a large international consensus. You know, we were not the only organization that uh, arrived at uh, statements like this. There were quite a few and they all more or less agreed on the same exact points. And in our particular statement, as you mentioned, was endorsed by many societies around the world, spanning many continents, and so probably is as close to an international consensus as could reasonably be achieved. And we all agreed that there were certain concrete steps that needed to be taken. I think the only thing we can take out of this is that, you know, we can only self-regulate ourselves so much um, as as a biomedical community. Um, we can we can have the highest ideals, but there are always going to be bad apples. There are always, always going to be rogue actors. But what I'm hoping will come out of this is such a severe backlash against this particular occurrence. And it was flawed for so many reasons. I mean, it went wrong on many scientific levels, on many ethical levels, that the backlash is so strong, that the opprobrium is so universal, even in China itself, um, from the government of China, from scientists in China, from their scientific societies, that anyone in the future, at least in the near future, who's contemplating doing this sort of thing, to seize the cost to reputation um, and to livelihood being so high that it's simply not worth doing it. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to add my, for. I'm going to add my own wish, which I think is in a way very counterintuitive. I think this is so awful that it shows that we in the U.S. in other countries. Uh, can't afford to simply back off on doing this research because it will move forward in other places and in darkness and, and, you know, without oversight, without transparency. And here where we have systems that where there is regulation and where there is calls for transparency, we need to do the opposite of what one might be tempted to do, which is sort of back away from this altogether. But rather, I think we should be funding this research, um, and we should be we should be doing it um, under the conditions where we can uh, learn from it, where we can m- measure and check it, where we know what's happening, where this kind of, as you called it, rogue thing is less tempting. It 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 can't yep. 
that's that's my own personal thing, and I realize it's a little counterintuitive, but no, I, that actually makes a lot of sense to me because you know, imagine a different scenario where. Uh, you know, governments had heavily invested in public funding of this research, and many investigators were able to work um, with embryos and uh, find ways to make the technology safer, reduce the chance of mosaic effects, reduce the fact uh, or the uh, chance of off-target effects, really perfect the technology, um, which will happen sooner or later anyway. But imagine it had happened much more quickly than it, than it has, and we were in a situation now where we had good tools and everyone was aware of those good tools because they were peer-reviewed um, and published in uh, universally accessible publications, and that there had been, you know, a serious conversation among, you know, scientists and ethicists and, you know, all the various stakeholders about HIV as a potential use case for this technology to weigh the pros and cons and, and really lay out, does it make sense to go after HIV? Does it make sense to go after... Um, Alzheimer's disease doesn't make sense to go after Huntington disease, you know, these various use cases and really achieve a consensus. And then for those rogue operators who you may not really be able to control much, at least they would, at least they would have available to them, you know, a better rationale for what they are doing and better tools so that if the study were going to be done or the procedure were going to be done, at least the people um, who ultimately are at risk from this the kids themselves who are born from the procedure uh, are in the absolute safest position and have the strongest possible justification for having uh, yeah, and had the, the And the families who are making them. these decisions um, have other places to go for information. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I really hope that, that it doesn't cause us to back away because I think, I think we need to do the opposite. I think we need to not, – not, don't get me wrong. I don't think that we should – immediately start funding people to, to do this, to bring babies to term and so on. I, I'm talking about in the basic research and um, uh, science of it. I think we need to uh, push forward and um, establish funding sources for it and, 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 and have it happen. So we are in agreement on this, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, this has been a really fascinating I, – this has been a fascinating conversation even after 10 straight days of – CRISPR babies. <laughs> I just really feel it was still fresh and new. So thank you so much, Kieran, for coming on. My pleasure. Really great. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Uh, go to the website, um, subscribe, follow me on Twitter, all that stuff. Thank you, everybody.